Awesome. Is there anything better than uh, watching baptisms? If you've been a Christian for a little while and you, you kind of recognize the significance of dunking somebody in a big tank of water in front of a crowd, um, you, you might reflect on your own moment or think about, man, I've committed my life to Jesus. I need to take a step like that and would encourage you to do that. You can talk to somebody at the welcome table, call in during the week, talk to a pastor. We'll help you kind of get informed about baptism. If you're new and you're like, why are we dunking people in water in a church service, um, there's a significant significant, uh, really in some ways a symbolic ritual that Jesus instituted to represent our lives before Jesus, that are destined towards death because of sin going into the grave, but us being born again just like Jesus was resurrected out of the grave. Baptism symbolizes that, and it really is an adoption ceremony saying, I'm a part of that resurrected family that Jesus started. And so we celebrate when people walk through that adoption ceremony, and it's symbolic of their true heart commitment and change of Jesus. So you're all invited to that. That's the cool thing. Everybody's invited to the family of God, and it supersedes all other human relationships and ties that we might have. Speaking of relationships, I want to talk to you about relationships today. Does that sound good to everybody? I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We'll jump into a story in there in a moment. And as you turn there or or flip there on your app or whatever else you might be doing, um, I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you, what do you think the difference is between short-term satisfying relationships and long-term satisfying relationships. Have you ever thought about that? Do you ever think about, you know, we, we kind of live in like a what have you done for me lately kind of a culture, right? And a lot of times we operate relationships in a what have you done for me lately kind of culture. And I think sometimes it, it results in a lot of good relationships not making it through to the next season where more good things could come when they're going through a difficult season. In fact, I was talking to a counselor in our, in our church family recently who said one of the, the greatest griefs in their work is when they could see breakthrough over the horizon in someone's marriage or relationship, but they don't see it through. They said, I can, the difference between people that are happy in a long-term relationship and those that aren't is often are they willing to persevere and work through some of the difficult things because there is fruit and benefit on the other side. And there's some people watching with us this morning from traditions across the hall where there's, I know there's some 60-plus year marriages. That's pretty amazing to me. I know there's other people like Pastor Darren and Danielle down at Ording watching with us this morning who are like, hey, 20 is on the horizon and 20 is going to be awesome, right? I'm with you there, Darren. So we're going to make it. 20 is on the horizon. And, and we think about marriages as one of those examples of relationships that many are long-term, many are short-term. But, you know, what's the difference between those? Maybe you have a friendship that you thought was going to be one of those lifelong, deep companion type relationships, and it didn't end up that way. Why not? Maybe there's others that that you've experienced those kinds of deep, lasting friendships that it seems like there's no amount of distance, there's no amount of difficulty, there's no amount of challenge that can really keep that relationship from being a core, meaningful, uh, soul-feeding relationship in your life. And what's the difference? I want to talk to you this morning as we wrap up our series on righteousness and justice about a couple of things that I believe really have saved my own marriage and have taught me how to have some of those long-lasting friendships and relationships in my life. And they really are the fruit of the righteousness and justice conversation. 
We've talked about some big concepts over the last a couple of weeks. Pastor Darren preaching at Ording, myself preaching here. We've talked about some big concepts about what it means to apply the right way of living in culture, society, in the world around us. We've talked about this right way that God prescribes for us that the Bible term uses the terms of righteousness and justice to describe. Righteousness being what it means to consider everyone else around us and do what is right in every relationship. Justice being taking it seriously to make right what is wrong in every relationship, both divine and human. And really, though those things often make us think in terms of global issues, global challenges, these these huge issues of justice that need to be taken seriously and should, sometimes the greatest acts of justice that you will ever do are going to be done in personal relationships are gonna be done in in personal interactions. And I wanna show you some examples of that this morning. But according to the Bible, according to, to God's word to us, the right way to live is always to prioritize healthy relationships with God and with people before anything else. That, that really this is the defining factor in whether we're living the way God created us to live or we're living in what the Bible calls sin, which is anything outside of the way God created us to live. And God created us to live in such a way that prioritizes healthy relationships with him and with everyone else around us. And when we do this, we flourish. Life becomes what it was meant to be. And it's really not that you can't have other things in your life, careers and passions and ambitions and dreams and hobbies. All of those things are good in their rightful place as long as the relationships around you are prioritized above those things, right? As long as you're making choices that bless the people in your life above just blessing what you want to do all the time, flourishing comes, And the Bible calls that righteousness. And when we don't do that, it's called unrighteousness and injustice. And justice is what it takes to get back on track. Now, the goal of justice, again, in a society that likes to talk a lot about justice, in a culture that has all sorts of causes that are meant to bring justice to different moments or groups of people, sometimes we forget what the goal of justice is. Have you ever noticed that sometimes justice in the world just seems like another way of one group of people getting it their way and another group of people losing out? And we just kind of trade out different injustices. That's actually not justice. That's short-sighted, uh, that's short-sightedness and really is not going to bring the kind of justice and righteousness that will bring reconciliation and healing and wholeness. We sometimes forget that the point of justice, the goal of justice is the restoration of all people and where possible, the restoration of the relationships between people. That should always be the point of justice in our lives, both personally and corporately. But you know, whereas Jesus is the only thing necessary to bring wholeness to people, There's a lot of things that he can use, a lot of people he can use. He desires to use human relationships. But if you have Jesus, you can be made whole. Any wound you have ever experienced, any abuse, any injustice you have ever been victimized by can be healed and restored by Jesus without anybody else involved. But in Jesus' best plan for your life, he wants to involve a lot of other people. And he wants to involve you in other people as well. Sometimes, in fact, I think always, Jesus wants to find some way to restore even the most broken relationships. Often not the way they started, because there's consequences to our brokenness. 
But Jesus desires to bring that, that reconciliation in relationships. How many of you know, though, that reconciliation takes both sides doing their part, right? It takes both sides doing their part. My mom always said, hey, it takes two to fight. And I don't know if that's actually true, but it does take two to make it right. It does take two to make it right. In fact, I'd like to blame all my siblings for every bad thing that ever happened in our home. I was never involved. Um, just kidding. Okay, now I'm lying. But all that to say, you know, we, it takes two to make the relationship right. And when it comes to our relationship with God, God has done his part to make it right. He has shown that he wants reconciled relationship. He wants relationship with you. There's nothing that you have done. There's no, no obstacle that, that could be there that makes God not want relationship with you. And if there's any thought in your mind that says, well, God wouldn't want me because, that's actually not true. It's a lie. And we know that because at the cross, God showed his desire to restore the relationship that you and I have damaged with selfishness and pride. When I think about some of the things that God does that I don't fully understand, or when I think about some of the big concepts that's hard to wrap my head around, we talked about one last week about the idea of judgment and God's justice on, on human sin that, that we don't uh, feel bad about. Sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my head around, but whenever I struggle with a God concept, you know what I always come back to? I always come back to the cross. Because at the cross, God came and laid his life down for me. And at the cross, God came and laid his life down for you. When we look at the cross, we are reminded that God in Jesus, he wants restored relationship with you. But it always takes two. It always takes two. God did the hardest part. He did the things that we could never do for ourselves, but God has done his part and he invites us to step into that reconciled relationship and our part is a little different. The Bible repeatedly uses a word that we don't use a lot in our culture. And when we do, we don't always use it accurately. The Bible repeatedly uses this word, repent. It invites us to reconcile relationship with God and with people by engaging in the act of repentance. And repentance is an act of the heart it's an act of the mind, and it's an act of the body. It is an all-in turning away from one set of priorities and reprioritizing your life. It's turning away from prioritizing things incorrectly, usually oriented around ourselves, and turns back to prioritizing correctly, which means our relationship with God is central and other relationships are important to us, at least as important as pleasing ourselves. Right? Repentance turns us back to loving God and loving people the way we were created to do. And repentance is one of those things that requires some humbling steps on our part. We'll talk about those more in just a moment. But people don't usually think like, oh man, if we had a repentance day at church, you know, next week we're having a Thanksgiving service. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be fun, powerful times of worship. It's going to be some amazing stories you're going to hear. It's going to be wonderful. But if we said, hey, next Sunday is repentance Sunday. Everybody is going to confess their sins, repent. There was going to be tears. There's going to be Kleenexes everywhere. It is going to be awesome. Everyone's going to start feeling guilty right at the beginning. And we'll work our way from there. That's usually how we think about repentance. We're like, ah, how do I avoid that? Right? I mean, I do. I don't know about you. That's how I often feel about it. And yet repentance is often the most healing thing we will ever do. 
I, I think it might actually 100% of the time be the most healing thing we will ever do. Repentance without a doubt is the most honest and important act of justice you can do. It is. And I'll show you why in our passage today, a story, a powerful story of repentance. And there are many in the Bible of people repenting. And repentance always, uh, the stories in the Bible and in human history of people repenting to God always result in an amazing transformation, both in the person and usually in the people around them. We'll see this in the story today. But if you want to follow along with me in Luke chapter 19, 1 through 10, It reads this way. It says, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. How many of you feel that way in worship on a Sunday morning? So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus. He called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house with great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I'll give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's Jesus, came to seek and save those who are lost. I love that story. I love that story. Jesus says, you know the reason I came? I came to find and save people who are lost. Do you know the most lost place you can be is when you don't know God? When you don't know the creator who created you, then you don't know the purpose you were created for. You don't know how to fulfill the longings inside of your soul. The most lost you can possibly be is when you are lost to God. And you will never be lost to God because he didn't come looking for you the cross. He came all the way. In fact, theologians and, and uh, even artists have depicted Jesus as one who is knocking on the door. Scripture depicts Jesus as one who's knocking on the door of our hearts saying, hey, I'm here. I found you. I want you to come home. And that's what Jesus says happened with Zacchaeus today. Did you notice he says salvation has come to this home? And what's weird about that, Zacchaeus didn't pray a, a sinner's prayer. I mean, Jesus is failing at leading Zacchaeus to Jesus here. He didn't lead him in a sinner's prayer. Zacchaeus didn't just like, he hasn't even been baptized yet. I mean, what is Jesus even talking about here? Jesus is talking about the thing behind every sinner's prayer. Jesus is talking about the thing behind every baptism. He's talking about repentance. He sees the signs of true repentance, so he knows that the sinner's prayer type of moment will come, the baptism moment will come. All those things will come because Jesus sees that Zacchaeus has opened his heart to Jesus and transformation has taken place, right? Now, how, how many of you, if you grew up in church, there's a song about Zacchaeus. I don't, I don't know it. I would sing it for you. I don't know it because I didn't grow up in church, but how many of you, you thought the minute you're like, Zacchaeus is a, he's a, what is he? 
He's a wee little man. See, you've got a bunch of church people up in here, which is just a weird thing to say these days. Let's be honest about that. Zacchaeus is a tiny guy. That's what we know about Zacchaeus. Why don't we sing a song about Zacchaeus that says, Zacchaeus transformed his community. Why don't we sing a song about Zacchaeus that says, Zacchaeus was one of Jesus' favorite people. We're like, Zacchaeus was short and he could climb trees. That's what we know about Zacchaeus. That's not the point. Do you know what the point of the story is? The point of the story is that Zacchaeus was a notorious sinner. That was his reputation. Notice that the, the community says Jesus, or the community says Zacchaeus is a notorious sinner. Jesus says he's a son of Abraham. Do you know what a son of Abraham was? It was a true son of God. Jesus sees something happen in Zacchaeus that means Zacchaeus just stepped into the family of God. He is a true son of God today. The community saw him as a notorious sinner. Jesus saw him as a son of God. What was the difference there? The difference is that Zacchaeus, though he was a notorious sinner, you know, we don't think much about this. You say he's a tax collector. And the, the worst thing that we can think is like, oh, he worked for the IRS. And that's not exactly a positive connotation for many in our society. But in, in Zacchaeus's culture, it was way worse. Being a tax collector there was way worse. Why? Because he was basically empowered by the government to rip people off. He was kind of like a mob boss that had the government behind him. In fact, in, in those days, the Roman Empire had the strategy where they would empower indigenous people to tax their own people on behalf of the Roman Empire, and, and they were backed up by the Roman army. So as long as Zacchaeus was collecting the taxes that Rome had demanded, they didn't care if he collected some extra for himself. In fact, they encouraged it. And as long as the people were paying the taxes, Zacchaeus wouldn't tell on them to the Roman Empire. But the minute people refused to pay their taxes, the minute people didn't give Zacchaeus the extra money, he would tip off the Roman soldiers and say, hey, those people over there aren't paying their taxes, even if they were. This is what the tax collectors did throughout the Roman Empire. And so tax collectors were hated. They were traitors. They were the people betraying their own people for personal profit. What makes you do something like that? You have to love money way more than you love people to do something like that. So Zacchaeus is already, he's already impoverishing overtaxed people. He's taking advantage of people that are already being taken advantage of by a, very, uh, by a very evil empire in Rome. He is the one who's just skimming off the top. He's fleecing his pockets and he's doing it to the people that he grew up with. There's people that are like, Zacchaeus, don't you remember? We went to high school together. Why are you doing this to me? He's like, are you gonna pay up or do you want the Roman soldiers to come visit? He was heartless. Being a tax collector was completely heartless. In fact, it was probably the lowest rank in social society that you could possibly have. It's the best way to lose all of your friends. And Zacchaeus had that kind of a job. Not only that, he was short. So short that he couldn't see over the crowd. But he had developed some good tree climbing skills. The, the point of that is that Zacchaeus had all of the wealth that people could have. He had everything money could buy. He had a fairly good access to power, security, all of the things that we want in human life. Zacchaeus had those things. But why would he go climb a tree in the middle of a crowd to see some guy he doesn't even know? Because when we get everything that we want or we think we want in life, we realize there's something more that we need. 
Zacchaeus was looking for, he had everything the world could offer him, but he was looking for something more. And so he went looking, and the, the interesting thing that he found was that Jesus was already looking for him. Verse 5 is so powerful. Jesus is walking through a crowd. He has celebrity status. He's, he's challenging the authority. He's preaching righteousness and justice with authenticity. He's doing healing miracles. Everybody wants to see Jesus and be around him. It's a massive crowd, and he stops, and he notices a guy up in the tree, and he says, Zacchaeus, he knows his name. It says he looked at him and he called him by name. Have you ever had that moment where you felt like God is looking at you and calling you by name? Calling you by the very depths of your heart like he knows you better than you know yourself? It's the way God looks at all of us. When we open the door to Jesus, it's the way he looks at all of us. He, he looks at us and he calls us by name and he says, I'd like to have lunch with you today. I'd like to have lunch with you today. I wonder when the last time was that anybody wanted to have lunch with Zacchaeus. Been a long time. He ate a lot of good food, but he always ate it by himself. So Zacchaeus is excited. He's like, Jesus wants to meet at my house. Jesus wants to eat at my house. Now, I don't know what conversations transpired over that table. We often don't know what Jesus' table conversations were. We just know that he liked to sit at table with people. He liked to have meals with people, especially the people nobody else wanted to hang out with. Jesus always wanted to hang out with them. And often by the end of the meal, some sort of transformation happens. Or people get really offended, one or the other. And at the end of this meal, Zacchaeus stands up and makes some radical statements. He says, I'm giving away half my money to the poor, to people I don't know, to people I owe nothing to, to people that, that may never thank me back. I'm giving away half of it. And with the other half, I'm going to use it to pay back everybody that I've ripped off, which by the way would be everybody in Zacchaeus' community. I, I'm going to pay back four times as much as I ever took from them. Man, that's a better return than any of those people could have gotten from any bank. I mean, Zacchaeus is going crazy here because of conversation that he had with Jesus and that's often what happens to us when we actually meet Jesus. When we recognize the reality of what God has done for us, it's the ultimate change agent. It changes everything to know that we're loved and wanted by God. It changes everything to realize that God paid the ultimate price. I mean, here Jesus just paid the ultimate social price. Everyone was mad at Jesus. They're all gossiping about Jesus eating lunch with Zacchaeus. They're like, okay, maybe this guy wasn't that great after all. He wants to hang out with Zacchaeus. And you know what, there's times in my life where I think if people knew Jesus was hanging out with me, they would have felt the same way. They're like, why is Jesus wasting time with Caleb? But Jesus thought Zacchaeus was worth it. He thought Zacchaeus was worth it. And, and this is always the way God approaches change in our lives. He always wants to lead us with love and relationship. Discipline and even judgment are always last resorts with God. We see that throughout the Old Testament with the nation of Israel. We see that in the New Testament through the way that God loves and disciplines his disciples. Discipline and judgment are always last resorts for God. God always wants to lead us with kindness. So that's why the Apostle Paul wrote that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance and to life change. God is so gentle and so kind that sometimes he's easy to ignore. And the amazing thing about Jesus, Jesus could do this over and over again. He was never worried about his social status. How, do you, how does that work with you? 
Like, how do you feel about your own social status? Are there certain environments that you step into and you're a little bit like measuring yourself up? Like, where do I fit in here? Or have you gone the other route and you're like, I'm so cold and calloused, I literally don't care what anybody thinks ever, even when I should. It's not necessarily better. It might be easier. I don't know. Bottom line, Jesus was able to do this with Zacchaeus and with other people that he got a bad rap for hanging out with because he was so secure in his relationship with the Father. Do you know that we are called to go to people like Zacchaeus in our own communities because we're so secure in the love of our Father in the identity that we have? And, and Jesus was never, he wasn't compromising his beliefs or his morals. He was so sturdy, so founded, so based in what God had done in his life because he was God, father, son relationship, setting the example for all of us. He was so founded in that that he could reach out to a a notorious sinner and he could love that notorious sinner even though that notorious sinner couldn't really give him back anything that Jesus couldn't just take from him. And we're meant to do the same thing. You know, my wife and I had an interaction with, with someone in our, our kind of close community that was, was kind of offensive. It was hurtful. It was disappointing. It was discouraging. Um, and, and you're like looking around the room. You're like, who is it? It's not anybody in here, okay? Somebody in second service. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, we had this interaction. And we kind of wrestled over like, how do we respond? Like, do we, you know, you kind of go through the like, do we just like let them have it? Do we just kind of walk away and distance ourselves? Like, what's the, and you know what? I, I, I don't always know in those moments exactly how to navigate all those things. But I felt like the first step just had to be love. Because this person kind of embarrassed themselves in front of a number of other people in our, in our circle, in our community too. And I knew that some of those people were bashing them. Some of those people were separating themselves and all those things. And, and, and a lot of it was well-deserved. That was the hard part. It's kind of like, yeah, you kind of burned all those bridges. And I just felt like I was supposed to be someone that just loved them. That just treated them like I'm a guy that screws up every now and then too and I love you. Didn't fix the problem. Didn't change the circumstances. And the only way I could do that is because I feel very secure in the love of my father. I feel very secure in my beliefs, in my behavior, and who Jesus has called me to be. I didn't feel like I was compromising those things to love someone who was not lining up with that at that moment. And that's an important thing for us to consider is that sometimes we feel like it's our job to punish with our own behavior what other other people's ill behavior And though sometimes even the New Testament says at some point that is appropriate, just remember we should always always respond with love. We should always respond with love. And sometimes that means acceptance before punishment. Sometimes that means grace more often or longer than we would want to. You know, sometimes it means those kinds of things. That's what Jesus did. And the, the, the beautiful part is that Zacchaeus didn't need more than that. There's a lot of people that don't need punishment in order to repent. Because there's a lot of us that punish ourselves pretty hard without needing someone else to do it. What we need is somebody to give us an opportunity to make things right. And Jesus extended an opportunity to Zacchaeus to make things right, and he responds with genuine repentance. Zacchaeus is our biblical picture of repentance today. He prioritizes this newfound relationship with God so much that it changes his actions and his behaviors towards all the other people in his life. 
That's how you know when you've repented. And you heard that in the baptismal this morning. You heard many of those, those people saying, man, I found Jesus. And when I found Jesus, it changed how I interacted with other people. For a kid, it changes how they interact with their parents, right? That's appropriate. For an adult, it changes how they interact with all the other adults in their lives. It changes things about them. And we see that in Zacchaeus. The first part, though, is always changing your relationship with God. How do we know that Zacchaeus' relationship with God changed? Because before, money was his God. Money was his security. Money was his pleasure. Money was his desire. Money was the thing he wanted. And we know that because he sacrificed all of his community to have it. He gave up all other relationships to have as much money as he could have. And in one statement, he makes himself so vulnerable financially that he could have been penniless by the end of it. We actually don't really know how this financially worked out for Zacchaeus. I mean, I don't know how many people he ripped off and how big he ripped them off and how much of that money he'd already spent. But when you say I'm paying you all back four times and I already gave half of it away... I don't know. We don't know. What we know is it brought him back down to earth financially for sure. But what we also see is that Zacchaeus replaced his idolatry of money with worship of God by laying down his money. That generosity is one of the most powerful statements of repentance that we make because we stop trying to be God of our own lives. Money is a tool we use to be God of our own lives. And there are other tools, not just money. But money is such a tangible one and generosity is such a tangible statement of worship, right? When we're generous, we say, money doesn't rule my life, God rules my life. Money doesn't provide for me, God provides for me. Money's not my security, God's my security, Right, and Zacchaeus did that. He said, money has been all those things to me, but as of now, money is nothing to me. Jesus is everything to me. And Jesus said, Jesus confirmed it by saying, salvation, son of Abraham. This guy is in my family now. This guy's under my protection now. This guy is on the inside with me now. This guy really gets it. But what were the, uh, the other side effects of that? Not only did, did his idolatry get replaced with worship, but when our idolatry is replaced with worship, our injustice is replaced with ministry. Justice, in many ways, would have been, by the world standards, would have been uh, Zacchaeus just giving back what he took. Justice would have been Zacchaeus just giving back with the appropriate amount of interest what he took. Right, in those situations. He knew the people. He knew how much he had taken. He, he, he could go back to them and literally pay them back. Now, sometimes justice is not always that simple, right? Sometimes fixing a relationship is not as simple as just giving somebody money back that you stole from them. In this case, it was. It was measurable. It was tangible. And, and so his worship turns to ministry. Why? Because he doesn't just stop at the people he ripped off. He says, I'm gonna give half of what I have to the poor, to people I didn't do anything to. And the poor were often immune to taxes because they didn't have anything to tax. Sometimes they were the greatest victims of taxes, but he, he says, I'm just gonna give it all, I'm gonna give 50% of what I have to the poor and I'm gonna use the other 50%, what? To go so big on paying back what I've stolen that people are gonna be blown away. I mean, Zacchaeus is the Ebenezer Scrooge of the Bible, Right? And you think about in the story of Ebenezer Scrooge, and many of you will watch you know, that movie, or if you're wise and you enjoy Christmas more, you'll watch the Muppet version of, of that movie, which my wife despises, even though it is awesome. So all that to say, 
Zacchaeus is Ebenezer Scrooge, and what happens from the beginning is he is just squeezing every penny out of every poor person, and by the end, he's knocking on people's doors and giving them a Christmas dinner and money, and do you remember what happens in the story? If you're watching the Muppet version, it's Miss Piggy who's like, oh my goodness, and she's, she wanted to kill him, and now she just wants to kiss him. You guys are like, are we seriously talking about the Muppets in church? You guys made Caleb Bryant your pastor, okay? (laughs) You're bad, not mine. But here's the deal. That's what happens with Zacchaeus. He goes crazy in a wonderful way. People become so important to him that he makes himself financially vulnerable to be a blessing to them, to restore the relationship. And so in one conversation, we see restoration happen between Zacchaeus and God. And we see restoration happen between Zacchaeus and his community. And how do you think that his community responded? We don't know. Some of them were probably weirded out. And we're like, that guy's not a notorious sinner. He's just a nutcase. Others probably did love him. He probably made friends with some of the people that were his enemies. He became guaranteed the biggest benefactor of his local community. Justice was achieved between God and between people because Zacchaeus stopped worshiping his idols and came to know Jesus. Zacchaeus stopped using people and started caring about them. That's what repentance is meant to do in our lives. Repentance is when we become so in awe of what Jesus has done. We trust Jesus so much that we allow him to heal the wounds in our own lives. We allow him to restore righteousness in our own relationships. We allow him to call us back to himself and it changes us, changes us. There really were two things though. It wasn't just repentance. There's another one, but first let's talk about repentance because here's here's the, I don't know, the good news, the bad news. Every single person that's hearing this this morning, not just in the gathering, down at Ording, Pastor Darren especially, you need to repent and and you know what for. No, just kidding. Uh, In traditions, Pastor Terry, no, just kidding. Uh, Pastor Terry's pretty pure. Maybe he doesn't have to repent. I don't know. Cynthia would know. But all that to say, you know, all of us, need to repent on a regular basis. We need to repent at least once right off the bat with Jesus. And that repentance, if you're like me, you find yourself with regular opportunities to repent. Like, oh man, I, I, I put myself in front of another relationship. I put my own feelings ahead of somebody else's feelings. I put my own well-being in front of somebody else's. I put my own desires ahead of God's priorities for me. I find myself regularly needing to repent. Now, King David, he messed up horribly. He was the first, he was the first famous Christian leader to have an epic moral failure. He wasn't, yeah, he was a Christian. He just didn't know Jesus' name yet. Another sermon. But all that to say, he has this massive moral failure, and then he writes Psalm 51. It's a great repentance psalm. And what does he say in that? He says, God, against you and you only has he sinned. Have I sinned? What does he mean by that? Does he mean he's, he's ignoring the other human Uh, the, the human people that he has victimized in that situation? No, he's just recognizing that all of his sin against God and other people is all against God. It's all against God. And some of it affects human beings. And there was another path for him to make that right. We, when we come to God, we recognize that we've done some things that have affected God first and foremost and they affect other people around us. And they require repentance. And genuine repentance doesn't always look like what we think. It doesn't look like just begging for mercy because Jesus has already offered you mercy. 
You don't have to beg. Jesus is like, please take the mercy. Why? Because genuine repentance enables you to do some things that you can't do otherwise. Genuine repentance takes responsibility for what you've done wrong. Things that we're afraid of, we can now own and we don't have to be ashamed or afraid because Jesus has already promised mercy. There are things in your life that you have to take responsibility for. There are things that you need to own and do you know the the Bible's pattern for that and Christian history's pattern is confession. Confession is when you say to God, God, I screwed up in these areas and I know it and I owe you big time because I screwed up and even what I owe you, you paid for me but I screwed up. Sometimes it means that you go to your spouse. People are about to feel really awkward. And you say, you know what? You know that, that Proverbs woman they talk about, the woman who keeps complaining to her husband, nagging at him, you know, just giving him a hard time all the time, he's never good enough, can't ever keep up? You need to repent. And husbands, you probably need to repent more. Usually, man, man, men somehow, we just happen to sin more than women most of the time. I don't know what it is. We need to repent, right? When you're too harsh, when you're not that gentle, loving leader that you are meant to be, you need to repent. Some of you need to repent to your kids. I do a repent to my son this morning for losing my temper when he was trying to help, when I'm trying to get him dressed because my wife abandons me to come lead you in worship every Sunday. Most stressful time of my week, getting my kids dressed. It's a miracle when I get myself dressed. No, but I did. I had to just say, hey, son, I'm sorry I got frustrated about that. That was on me. That wasn't your fault. That was my fault. And my son looks at me with this look like all kids do. They're like, in their heads, they're saying, duh. I know. Right? We have to repent. We have to say, man, I, I'm sorry. I, I did that wrong. That's not, I have to say to my kids regularly, that's not the kind of father God is. That's confession. That's the, my sin nature inside of me that God is rescuing me from. God is a better father and I want to be like him for your sake. And I'm thankful, I think in some areas, they have seen God changing me in those, in those things, Right? Apparently not when it's time to do hair and get dressed. Jesus, help me. Right? But repentance means you take responsibility for what you've done wrong. Secondly, repentance does whatever possible to make the past right. And let's just be honest. Sometimes you can't make the past right. Sometimes you've done things or people have done things to you and there's not really a, a way that, that you can just, you know, make up and everybody's like, yeah, we're all good. Sometimes there are wounds that are inflicted that leave a scar. It doesn't mean they can't be healed, but sometimes it means that the relationship will never quite be the same. Right, and sometimes when we're, we're trying, we're holding on to the past being fixed, we're missing out on something else. But repentance does whatever is possible to make the past right. And, and that's where the heart change always has to become behavioral change. You know, we live in a society that I ask the question about long-term relationships between short-term because long-term relationships learn how to repent when they're wrong. That's what makes a long-term relationship work and actually be flourishing, not just be a living dead relationship. Repentance makes the relationship work. You make right what you can about the past. You apologize, yes, but you also do what you can to repair the damage. 
You know, there, there are friends of mine that I know that at one point abandoned their kids and their spouse, and they can't necessarily go back and just be like, hey, I'm here, I'm dad, you're welcome. Each relationship has to be handled differently. They have to make right what they can, but also realize that some damage was done that's gonna have to take time at best to be repaired. So repentance doesn't always mean things snap back into just perfect condition. But here's the cool thing about repentance. Repentance doesn't always fix the past hurt, but it does set up future health. You need to stop trying to fix the past all the time and set things up for future health. That's what real repentance does. That's what Zacchaeus did. He He kind of could fix some of the past, but he couldn't fix wounds that had been inflicted while those people were impoverished. When there were people that maybe couldn't pay medical bills, there were people that maybe couldn't put food on the table, there were people that maybe did lose a loved one due to their lack of financial security in that time. He couldn't fix those things. He could just set them up well for the future, right? And that brings us to the final piece of repentance. Repentance, when it's done right, focuses on a better future, not a broken past, that's what Jesus did at the cross. He took care of the past. He offered us uh, reconciliation from the past, but he's focused on the future. Jesus came the first time to take care of the past, but he's coming back a second time to lead us into a glorious future. When we repent of our sins, we have to be careful not to live in the guilt and the shame of the past. That's not what the cross sets us up for. We have to let go of the guilt of the past and work with every ounce of our energy and our being towards a better future for us and the people around us. That's what repentance brings. And that is a beautiful thing. And can I just ask you, let's be people of repentance. The best people in the world are people of repentance. The best people in the world are people that are so secure in the Father's love that they can say, you know what, I screwed up that time. I'm sorry. The best people in the world are people that see their pride and they're like, oh, there's that ugly pride again. And you know the way you do that? I'm sorry. I need to make it right. I was wrong. Those things we hate saying. And then there's this other side to the healing that Jesus does in the Zacchaeus story. It's forgiveness. And sometimes forgiveness is even harder than repentance. It has the same kind of pride at the root of it, unforgiveness does, as unrepentance. They have the same pride root from different angles. One is the wounder, one is the wounded. And Jesus invites us to forgive. Why? Because he forgave all of us before we ever offered to make it right. So he's the only one that can say, hey, I'm kind of expecting you to follow my example. And forgiveness is a financial term. It's about letting go of a debt that is owed. And forgiveness, Jesus asks us and he demonstrates to Zacchaeus that at times people repent to you and you want to hold it over to their heads. Hold it over their heads. There's times when they will never repent to you. And you use that as a reason that your life can never flourish. And one of the most beautiful invitations of scripture is the invitation to forgive. How do we let go of a debt that is owed to us? How do we let go of the revenge that we deserve? How do we let go of the vindication we crave? We surrender it to Jesus. Forgiveness is letting go of the debt that is owed to you and putting it in Jesus' hands. Saying, Jesus, you're the judge, I'm not the judge. Saying, Jesus, you're the one that really every debt is owed to, I'll leave this in your hands. And we surrender the debt to Jesus to do with it what he wants. And in many ways, 
God will collect that debt. We talked last week about the justice of God. There is a debt that is owed to God for what is done to us. But God also has the right to forgive that debt based on what Jesus did on the cross. That's between them and God. And that's really what forgiveness is. It's saying, God, I don't understand it. I don't even always like it. Like, I, I, think, I think on this one, you should really go for the revenge. But that's not my call. Because you didn't take revenge on me. I'm going to surrender my desire for revenge, my desire for punishment, my desire for retribution. I'm going to surrender it to you. And do you know what that looks like? It looks a lot like repentance. It looks like treating that person with love and acceptance again to the degree that is healthy. To the degree that is healthy. Right? Those that have been in, in severe forms of abuse, that does not look like just putting them in a position to abuse again if they have not repented of their sin. But what it does look like is that you, you pray, you look at, you think, you treat them with human love. Human love. So we come to the end of just a really simple concept, a really simple story, and the question for you this morning is where do you need to repent and where do you need to forgive? And that's a question that the Holy Spirit loves to help us answer. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we hear your word to us. And I just ask that first and foremost, you would keep knocking on the doors of all of our hearts. I ask that, Lord, in this moment, we would open our hearts to you. We would see the love in your eyes. We would hear you calling our names. We would see the forgiveness that you have offered to us and the justice that you took for us. And we would be moved to action ourselves. So Father, would you lead us in the path of repentance? Lead us in the freedom of forgiveness so that we can flourish and bring flourishing to the people around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.